happiness. We know we want it, but what exactly are we looking for? If we believe the classic children's song and Pharrell Williams, there's probably some hand clapping involved. But for most of us, happiness is a bit more elusive. Often, the things we think will get us there money, power, fame, pleasure, comfort bring us just the opposite. And paradoxically, if we spend too much time chasing it, we might actually be getting farther away from it. A handful of BYU professors are tackling this conundrum head on, teaching courses about happiness and how to create a meaningful life in fields from psychology to humanities to business. They all share an ambitious goal with Professor Brian Hill. I mean, we talk about, well, we want them to understand the foundational theories and principles of the class. Great. But what I really want is I want them to be happier. I want them to actually feel better. Welcome to the Why Magazine podcast, bringing you ideas, stories, and voices from Brigham Young University. I'm Whitney Archibald, and today I'll be your tour guide around campus for a crash course of our own about happiness and well-being. We'll visit four professors, Brian Hill, Nate Kramer, Jared Warren, and Mark Widmer, who teach some of these courses about creating a meaningful life. Along the way, we'll talk about some of the biggest of big ideas. What is happiness? How do we find it? And is it even something we should actively pursue? For each course, we'll get a brief overview and a taste of some of the main principles. Each professor will also give a book recommendation and even a homework assignment to help us step into this student role and experiment with different ways to make our own lives more meaningful. This episode is based on a feature article in the winter 2023 issue of Y Magazine called Let Joy Find You by Emily Edmonds. For the first stop on our campus tour, we're headed to the largest classroom in the Tanner Building for Brian Hill's class, Creating a Good Life, one of the most popular classes at BYU. About 1,500 students take it each year. The name of the class was very deliberate. If you become obsessed with happiness, if you pursue it, it actually the research suggests that that is likely to lead to less happiness. So what's important is to say, I want to have a good life. I'm going to have positive and negative experiences and emotions as a part of that. And I'm going to try and figure out the behaviors that lead to meaning in my life. But if I'm obsessed with pleasure and happiness for every moment, that actually works against you. So we call creating a good life instead of pursuing a good life. And I think that's an important distinction. Philosophers have been trying to crack this code of finding happiness for centuries. Well, Aristotle wrote a book called Nicomachean Ethics that really tried to define the good life. And he believed that the philosopher's life was the truly good life. But he also was able to say that a good life is living virtuously. And then he went about most of his book defining virtue as sort of a middle ground between two extremes. So to be generous would be a virtue. So you would think of the extremes on both sides would be to be a spendthrift and somebody who had no boundaries as far as money goes, and they would give away all that they had and never could take care of themselves or their family. And on the other side of that might be somebody who is stingy and, you know, the epitome of Scrooge. So so you, you kind of find the balance in between these two extremes, and then he said that's a virtuous life. More recently, scientists have also gotten into the game as psychologists started to study the science of happiness. When this developed several decades ago, the first look at happiness was as positive mood. You know, how are you feeling right now? And and that has significant limitations. It doesn't account for 
meaning in your life or other kind of peak experiences. It doesn't really account for relationships that you might build that are really important. And so Martin Seligman, who's considered the father of positive psychology, who's still around and still leading thinking about this, he kind of moved from a theory of authentic happiness to a theory of well-being. And so that was kind of a development. It's interesting because Aristotle, he also kind of differentiated between these two things. He said hedonic happiness is sort of pleasure. It's that positive emotion in the moment. And then eudaimonia is this thing that's sort of like a good life that's more about meaning than it is about necessarily just how you feel right now. But the best case is not to have to choose between these two. It's to say, you know what? You can have a good life right now, today, and you can have a good life long-term. You don't have to choose one or the other. It's not about just having pleasure or meaning, but it's saying, you know what? You can have appropriate pleasures and savor those. It's what the mindfulness movement is all about, savoring the moment, as well as then having meaning, doing things that contribute to society. After they dive deep into the theory of happiness, Hill and his students get more practical. We look at what I call life hacks, which are not as theoretically driven, but really important parts of having a good life. These are things about being overscheduled in our, in our time and feeling rushed and overwhelmed. We talk about technology and maybe overconnection with technology. We look at the research on spending time outside and how that's so good for us in so many ways. And then we finish the class by introducing experience design and design thinking, including empathy with relationships and coming to understand people as people instead of as objects. And then we finish with a kind of a two-week workshop on using design thinking to design your life. So we have students work through this process that comes from uh, actually Stanford's design school and saying, how do you use design thinking now to actually process the next five years of your life. And that's kind of how we finish the class. Wow, that is amazing. And so cool to provide this class at such a pivotal point in all of these students' lives when they're making so many decisions and kind of trying to get this vision of what their life will be. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no other time they're deciding about uh, what they're going to major in, what they might try to do for a career. What about their long-term relationships? They're deciding about their spiritual life. It's just an explosion of decision. It's a crucial time to learn new ways to think about your life. Using design thinking is about finding sort of unexpected sources of joy in your life. And so a lot of the ideation comes from thinking and catching yourself, finding joy in ways you might not expect. We have an assignment in the class called Designing Your BYU Experience, and it's all about choosing experiences through the semester that will meet the, the aims of a BYU education. And so they choose things and try to, to make the connection between, gee, if I go to football games, that's going to connect me to other people and it's going to help me have a better semester. So they have to go and choose a diverse group of activities through the semester and then kind of link those back to to what it means to be connected to BYU, to be connected to each other, and a good life. Starting small and designing their BYU experience sets students up for the bigger project that we're all engaged in, designing our own lives. This is Hill's true passion and what he has devoted his career to studying, experience design and management. He wants to help these students design meaningful careers, relationships, and lives. 
Hill likes to share a framework he learned from BYU alum Allison Davis-Blake when she was the dean of the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And she talked about this paradigm about choosing your life path. And she said, you know, you can think of this as a two-by-two matrix that has the four quadrants. One of them is, these are the things that bring me joy. So there's stuff that does bring me joy and stuff that doesn't bring you joy. And then there's things you're good at and that you're not good at. So you think about the things you're not good at that don't bring you joy, just bring you misery. And we all have those kind of jobs at some point in our lives. And then another one is, is the thing that we're not very good at, but brings us joy. And I always talk about playing football and how I loved it so much and I was terrible at it. And it was not <laughs> going to be a career path for me. So we've kind of, that that's a dead end, right? You know, you're not going to go very far there. But she said, the thing you have to really watch out for is the thing that you're good at that doesn't bring you joy because you'll be compensated for it. People will give you praise for it and it's hard to escape. And then the best place to be is that thing that brings you joy that you're also good at. And that's the golden ticket. Yeah, I always, I, I make a joke that I'm really grateful that there are people who want to be accountants and there are, they love it. I'm so glad because I don't. So um, even if I were good at it, it's that's not my path. And thank goodness that there are people who love just about everything there is to be done. And so if they can find that and do that, that just makes for a much better life. So now it's our turn. Hill has an assignment for us too. First, read the book Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans, and then get to it, Designing Your Own Life with Intention and Creativity. Be intentional and choose the experiences in your life that will bring you joy. You need to just say, okay, if we're going to build our family culture, we just can't let it happen. We have to actually think about it and plan for it and, and make rituals that are meaningful. So being intentional in the kinds of behaviors that we kind of already know in our hearts will make us happy. Being intentional about how we create a good life for other people. Now let's walk across campus to the Thomas L. Martin Building, better known as the MARB, to visit Psych 349, Introduction to Positive Psychology, one of several positive psychology classes taught by Jared Warren. Warren's class is based on the premise that happiness is a skill, or rather a set of skills, that we can develop and practice in this endeavor to create a meaningful life. Warren has divided these skills into three pillars of well-being. Perspective, which is our vision and direction in life, People, making positive connections, and power, our ability to act effectively in our environment. Within each of these pillars are five or six specific topics that students can study to develop skills to actually practice being happy. Topics like finding purpose, savoring, compassion, personal growth, and self-compassion. Here's Jared Warren. We'd go through all of these different topics, and three different times during a semester, students do what we call the 21-day personal experiment. So they get to pick one of these topics like gratitude or mindfulness or relationships. So they learn about you know, what it is, why it's important, how it's related to well-being, and especially important is how do you get better at this? And so then we have a menu of research-based strategies, activities, exercises that people can sample from and figure out what really makes a difference for them. For example, if students were to choose the topic of purpose, they could choose from 12 different exercises, like creating a vision board, designing their own tombstone, taking photos of things that bring meaning to their lives, and my favorite... Think of four people you admire and appreciate and imagine they're giving you a toast at an event 30 years in the future. 
then write their toasts for them. Let's look at another one. How about savoring? Some of the exercises students can choose from are really savoring a meal, eliminating other distractions, and noticing the textures and flavors and smells, or taking a leisurely walk without an agenda and paying attention to your surroundings, or savoring time with a person you love by being fully present with them for a conversation or activity. To me, one of the most important goals of the class is to help a person figure out what belongs in their personalized toolkit for well-being. And sure enough, at the end of the semester, they've got a good set of strategies that they practiced and they know how to use them. And the hope is, is that they are learning how to set time aside for their development. And so built into those 21-day personal experiments, we try to have them learn about, but especially practice those strategies related to the topic for about 20 to 30 minutes a day. And you kind of just hope and encourage people to set that time aside is almost like sacred personal growth time. One of the reasons we have it set up that way is just what the neuroscience research tells us about how you change the brain in healthy ways. It takes practice. It takes reinforced practice and pushing through challenges and figuring out what works for you. But the practices themselves consistently done rewire the brain in healthy ways so that those positive emotions and experiences become more of the default experience than something we have to chase after. So is he saying we can actually change the structure of our brains? Yes, 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 yes. A hundred times yes. One of the interesting and, and most important findings coming out of the neuroscience research of the last 20 some years is that you absolutely can change the brain in healthy ways. It's probably true that practically everything you do or don't do is going to change your brain in certain ways. It's just a matter of, you know, what are these new neural pathways that you're laying down? And that comes from our behavior, our habits. So um, we want to practice consistently kinds of strategies that are going to change the brain, mold it in healthy ways. And yeah, we, the term we use for that is neuroplasticity. And unlike, you know, years back, you'd hear, oh, you're by age 24, your brain is done developing. It's like your brain's cooked and, you know, there you go. There's your brain. Not so much. Yeah, we can keep changing it in healthy ways uh, through practice. And we can play more of a role in, in how we want our brains to develop moving forward. And that can happen all throughout our lives. Now that's great news. So no matter how long ago it was that you were one of those bright-eyed BYU students, it's not too late to change your brain. But the goal is not just to be happy all the time. That's not possible or even optimal. Part of finding this sweet spot of well-being includes a recognition that life includes the full range of human emotion so that if you're not feeling happy in a given moment, that's actually not necessarily a problem. You know, there's periods of life and events that happen where feeling down or discouraged or anxious, it's, it's perfectly normal. And I think we want to lean into that and be able to not avoid those experiences, but know how to work with them in a healthy way. And I think when we can do that, we kind of carve out a space within ourselves that actually increases our capacity for happiness and joy and all those feelings. 
Another interesting concept Warren teaches about is a phenomenon called hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is this natural human phenomenon where we pretty quickly adapt to some new circumstance or some positive event or something that we expected would make us happy. And it's not that it doesn't bring us any happiness. It's that our prediction about how happy it's going to make us is usually unwarranted. So we don't get as much happiness about it as we expect we will. And the duration, how long it lasts, it's much more short-lived than we expect. And so uh, there are a lot of things that fall in this category, and they typically have to do with events and circumstances. In fact, a good check for ourselves is if we notice ourselves, even in our own, own minds, using language like, I'll be happy when, fill in the blank, we're often setting ourselves up for disappointment because of this phenomenon of hedonic adaptation. And so this could be a lot of things. It could be thinking, okay, if I get this new car, or if I get a promotion at work, or if I get Taylor Swift concert tickets, <laughs> that's going to make all the difference in, in my life. Now, that all those things are cool, but for our long-term well-being, we're going to set ourselves up for disappointment because we quickly adapt to whatever those new circumstances are. So the Taylor Swift concert can be amazing, but then it becomes a memory and you're quickly, you know, moving on to the next thing. Even the promotion or a new car, a new house, those could be great. But if you're expecting that to make a, a lasting difference, we're going to be disappointed because we seem to quickly fall back to kind of a set point. Some people believe there's kind of a, a set point of our happiness or well-being that circumstances don't do much to change, but that these positive psychology practices that we're talking about, that actually is something that makes a much bigger impact on our long-term well-being and that can maybe even move that set point of our well-being, unlike you know some specific event or circumstance. But taking the time to practice well-being is easier said than done. Warren gives a great example of how we don't always make effective choices in the moment because, well, we're human. We're often mistaken intuitively about what we think in, in the moment is going to be helpful for our well-being. This is a simple example, but let's say I come home from work and I'm kind of tired and wanting to kind of pick me up. And let's say I've got three options hypothetically in front of me. I've got a half a gallon of ice cream that I could eat. I could go on social media and watch videos of dancing kittens, or I could meditate for 20 minutes. Now, for the average human, 99% of the time, the 20-minute meditation is going to be in last place if you're looking at those three options. Even though long-term, it's absolutely the case that that would be a practice that would really make a meaningful difference in a person's well-being. So we're working against kind of normal human interest in novelty and stimulation and, you know, the things that capture attention in the moment. And, um, you know, that's kind of part of what it means to be human. But when we are in the habit of doing those things that make a difference in our long-term well-being, what we discover not only is life just better, generally speaking, but the ice cream tastes better, the cat videos are funnier, and it's not an either or, it's a recognition that, you know, with cultivating these new habits, there's a cost up front, but the benefits are more long term. 
which is what's flipped with most of people's natural efforts at pursuing happiness where they want the payoff immediately, but then there's longer term negative consequences. I love this idea of scheduling time to practice happiness. Sure, it takes some work up front, but the payoff of increasing our long-term well-being is pretty huge. So, big surprise, this is our assignment too, to practice a habit related to well-being for 21 days. Lucky for us, Jared Warren and his team have created an amazing online resource at mybestself101.org. This website is a treasure trove of information, as close as you can get to taking Psych 349 yourself without actually taking it. Before you even dive into the information on the site, you can take a quiz to assess your overall happiness. Just taking the quiz is really fun and thought-provoking, but then it compares your score with everyone else who's taken it, which is super interesting. Plus, taking the quiz allows you to actually be part of Jared Warren's research as he adds your data to the rest of the people who've taken the questionnaire. Then you can either take more quizzes to pinpoint what areas you can improve, or just jump into the training modules for each of the topics in Warren's Three Pillars of Flourishing. This is where you can find some of those exercises we talked about earlier. The training modules are broken into 17 categories that you can choose from to do your own 21-day challenge, if you choose to accept it. The next two classes are less traditional than the first two classroom settings. Field trip! First, we have Mark Widmer's graduate course in BYU's MBA program entitled Razor's Edge. While much of the class does take place in a small classroom setting, we're talking just 15 students, it also involves going on adventures, including a trip to St. George or Moab, Utah. Like Brian Hill, Mark Widmer's background is in experience design, so the class focuses on helping these students design their lives and careers in a way that will help them create a more meaningful life. As I began framing the class, I looked at a book by Clayton Christensen, and his book, How You Measure Your Life, begins with his experience at Harvard, where he was an MBA student. And when you think about these people, they're talented, they're smart, they're going to have a great network. And so, in a way, they are on the path to the American dream, to like this life of happiness. And he said at their fifth year reunion that people were doing great. But at the 10 year reunion, people were moving to places in their lives that weren't necessarily good. In 15 years, a bunch were a mess. One was going to jail for fraud, and others were divorced, and their kids were struggling. And he pointed out that they didn't start out with a deliberate strategy to mess up their lives, but in fact, that's what had happened. And it raises the question for the rest of us. It's like, okay, um, how do we intentionally build a good life? And so that was kind of what spurred part of the class and really what the focus of the class is on is how do you answer that question around how can you intentionally build a good life and not end up like these really bright people who messed up their lives. Woodmer also talks a lot about practical ways to increase well-being. The benefits of eating well and exercise are tremendous. And even a little bit of exercise, like playing pickleball 30 minutes a day, four or five days a week, have dramatic impacts on us physically and emotionally. And for older people, you know, older than 40, if you start exercising, it can reverse coronary heart disease and other things. So one issue is to try and find things that are fun for you to do so that it doesn't feel like drudgery. And then to try and change the way that you eat to eat better. Another practical thing you can do is analyze your relationship with money. Widmer recommends a book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. He makes some profound 
points. And part of it is that many of us don't have a very good relationship with money. And it's tied to these ideas around happiness, that if you have a lot of money and you can buy cool things and go on cruises and eat good food and, you know, have a huge house and a nice car, that you're going to be happy. And I think that for many of us, developing an appropriate relationship with money is super important. And what we have been instructed to do by modern day prophets in terms of living within our means and getting out of debt are profound principles that can make our lives a lot better. But Widmer's favorite happiness strategy is getting out in nature. Nature provides so many benefits for kids and for adults, particularly around things like our attention, ADHD, and stress, but there's other benefits. And so they read a little bit about this, and then we spend time in nature. And then also part of that is there's just awesome things that you can do in nature, like cross-country skiing or mountain biking or hiking or rock climbing or fly fishing, things that can be very powerful in our lives that, for one reason or another, people have gotten away from. Well, you're not getting away from nature if you're enrolled in this class. Widmer takes his MBA students on a multi-day trip that he calls an epic learning adventure. They do some of those awesome activities that he just mentioned, like mountain biking and rock climbing, but they also study nature, happiness, and relationships. On the drive down, when we're going three hours to Marbury St. George, we have very specific questions that we ask and discuss in the vans that help them build relationships and make connections, but also find the joy in doing that and understand kind of the value of relationships. So I had one student a number of years ago who we got back trip where we had spent a lot of time and money to design experiences where we go mountain biking and canyoneering and whitewater rafting. And she said that the best part of it was the van ride and this discussion. And I'm like, well, maybe we don't need to waste our time and money. We'll just get vans and drive around for a while and talk about <laughs> these questions. So, so they disconnect from technology, which allows them to recognize the burden that they carry when you get a text or an email or a phone call or you read media or you're on social media and you're comparing yourself to other people that create to some extent an emotional burden and and then being in nature and doing a mindfulness experience and learning to appreciate nature. One of the most satisfying things for Mark Widmer is to see his students apply this in their careers after graduation. One student contacted him a few years after taking his class to report back. He realized that he was trying to pursue kind of this typical good life. And he was offered a promotion at work. And he explained to his boss that his priorities were his job, but also his family and his faith. And that this position he was being offered might make it difficult for him to reconcile these values. And the, his boss, from what I recall, came back to him and said, well, great. Design the position the way that you want and, you know, we'll, we'll kind of work through this, but we want you in the position. And he made choices, for example, to get rid of an expensive car that he had a loan on and started riding his bike to work every day and taking his kids and his family into nature every week. And so he started to change his finances so he had less stress and wasn't pursuing more all the time, spend time with his family and in nature and to kind of hear people do that and how much how excited they get about it. It's just really fun and rewarding. But I know your tricks. You're not going to get Mark Widmer talking about past students and make him forget to give you your homework assignment. Two, actually, to focus on two of his favorite components of well-being. First, nature. Plan an activity out in nature, anything from a walk or a hike to kayaking down a river. And second, relationships. Read the book Anatomy of Peace and think about how they can heal their most important relationships. So Anatomy of Peace talks about 
how we can move to a place in our own lives where we can be at peace with relationships and see other people in ways that can really enrich our lives and can help us when we have conflict. That is so powerful. And, and for many students, it changes the way they think. So as they read this book, they start to reflect on their own relationships and they realize that they need to quit trying to change other people and change their own heart in the relationship. I love this idea that our own well-being and our relationships are so interconnected. Well, we've come to our final class, and I hope you've packed your bags because we're hopping a flight to Reykjavik, Iceland. Oh, and Oslo, Norway, and Copenhagen, Denmark. We'll be joining Nate Kramer, a professor of comparative arts and letters who specializes in Nordic studies on a six-week study abroad program where the central course focuses on happiness in the Nordic region. Kramer developed the course with co-director Taylor Hoy, an adjunct professor in public health and comparative arts and letters. We had floated this idea of Nordic happiness as a potential topic. The Nordic countries have kind of been in the limelight, as it were, the last several years. Um, Finland has ranked, I think if this is either the fourth or fifth year that it's been ranked as the, the happiest country in the world. Um, the Nordic countries are always in the top 10, often in the top five. And so we thought this would be a perfect time and, a, and an interesting topic for students to explore with us as we go and experience uh, these different countries. This is probably not the first time you've learned about the reputation for happiness in the Nordic region. You may have heard of Scandinavian words like hygge, or even lagom, or Norwegian has a word kos. These have kind of taken the world by storm in a way, right? So um, the English have been very interested in these words for a long time. They've made their way to the U.S. And this has been kind of a popularization, maybe, of Nordic happiness. Um, the way most people are introduced to Nordic happiness is through these words, like hygge, which means a kind of coziness or a kind of comforting sort of experience or atmosphere. And I think those have become very important in the perception of the Nordic countries as these happy places. They've acquired become almost a kind of industry on their own, selling lots of books and selling a kind of lifestyle. But I think those are really rooted in this idea of Nordic happiness and trying to kind of pinpoint what it is that makes uh, the Nordic countries so happy, at least according to these surveys. And I think people have alighted on, well, it's got to be their coziness or their, their hygge, their lagom that uh, makes them the way they are. But Kramer wanted to go deeper than pop culture and investigate in person with his students. Part of their investigations were observations. Often they would just walk around and take notes of what was different about the cultures they visited. I was so curious to find out what conclusions they came to by the end of their travels and studies about happiness in these countries. You know, I, th I think there are lots of different reasons, and I'm persuaded by some of them. Some of them I'm not so persuaded by, but I think it's also important to have a healthy dose of skepticism or some curiosity at least as to why and how they've become the happiest countries in the world. Um, but one of the factors I'm probably most convinced by is the idea of high levels of social trust uh, in the Nordic countries. And that's not something that you would maybe think of immediately, but the Nordic countries are quite literally off the charts when it comes to these high levels of social trust. Uh, and this is some major contributing factor in their happiness. And something that I'd never really paid much attention to before is that on the public transportation that we took in Norway, no one ever checked our passes. So I bought transportation passes for all the students. 
they all had their transportation passes, but very rarely would anyone ever be checked. There were no turnstiles. You didn't even scan your transportation pass to get in. There was no no one even checking our transportation passes at all. And this surprised us. It surprised them that there was this sense of trust um, that just seemed to operate in all these different places. And we noticed it particularly on the buses and trains. Other factors include things like good institutions are really, really important. So there's support networks. Social relations become very important. Associations and clubs are really important in the Nordic countries. It's just part of the social fabric of their lives that they often join sporting clubs or or choir clubs or you know various associations where they get together often so social interaction social relationships become very very important um, for happiness work is also a really important contributing factor to to happiness as well and uh, the nordic countries are very interested in this idea of work that every citizen needs to have some sort of meaningful job or occupation the Nordic states are also known for uh, things like freedom and tolerance as well, um, very tolerant societies. So uh, that also seems to be a very uh, important factor, too, for happiness as well. So after such an immersive experience, I asked Kramer what changes he has actually implemented in his own life based on what he discovered about happiness. This is kind of actually a very small thing, but my wife and I, being on study abroad, we walked everywhere. We would walk to the grocery store. We'd walk to the various sites and locations that we'd be visiting. Everything is relatively close. So, but we count our steps at the end of the day and we'd, we'd have walked, you know, seven, eight miles. And living where we live here in the States, nothing's very close at all. And so walking was this great opportunity for us to get out together. We would talk, we would be doing physical exercise. And we really enjoyed it. And we missed that so much here. And what we decided to do was just continue this. We would just go out on evening walks. And in fact, we started even walking to the grocery store, which is not close to where we live, just to get in our steps and just to enjoy that walking together like we, we had done. So you're probably wondering what your assignment is going to be, since you're probably not actually going to fly to Scandinavia. This one might surprise you. There are lots of studies to suggest that just simply trusting other people improves one's own life significantly and measurably. So that would maybe be an assignment. Certainly one I'm going to think about is just how to trust other people more than maybe I do to give people the benefit of the doubt. We live in a, a very interesting moment. There's a lot of division, it seems, and I think a lot of that division might be overcome simply by a little more trust. With this lofty goal, I'll leave you to do your homework as you design your own best life. We'll put a complete list of recommended books in the show notes and on this episode's page at magazine.byu.edu slash podcast. As you do your assignments, remember this advice from Jared Warren. If you live a life that is in alignment with good principles, happiness is a natural consequence of that, and you're not even worried about it anymore, really happy people... They don't keep asking themselves, am I happy? What's wrong with me? Am I not happy enough? They're just living their amazing life. And I think that's what I've been able to figure out a little bit more with time. Thank you for listening to the Why Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
This episode was written and performed by Whitney Archibald based on an original article, Let Joy Find You, in the Winter 2023 issue of Y Magazine by Emily Edmonds. Audio production and original music by Jarrett Davis Production. Oversight by Denya Palmer and Peter Gardner.